Before we start this week's episode, I would just like to tell you about a very good podcast called Mysteries and Urban Legends Podcast. Here is a little bit more information by the hosts themselves. Hey guys, do you like mysteries and urban legends? Do you like creepy stories and unsolved true crime? Then join us every Tuesday and Saturday at Mysteries and Urban Legends and get to the bottom of weird urban legends and spooky mysteries. Late one evening, on the 29th of October, 1998, a fire breaks out inside a function hall where a party for young people between the ages of 12 and 25 is taking place. The results of the blaze would be devastating. It would be the country's worst fire-related disaster in modern times, killing 63 people and leaving over 200 injured. However, this was no accident. The fire was started on purpose. This is Nordic True Crime. In the autumn of 1998, some friends decide together that they want to organize a party. After discussing their options, they believe that it would be better if they could hire a place for their planned party, somewhere where they could play their music as loud as they wanted, far away from complaining neighbors. They find a suitable function hall and in turn make the party much bigger than they had originally planned. The place in question is the Macedonian Association Club in the center of Gothenburg, Sweden's second city. This was seen to be the perfect location as they had previously been there in the past for friends' parties. They manage to scrape together the required money that will cover the hire of the premises, including the hire of some sound and light equipment. They decide that they will recoup some of their expenses by charging an entry fee of 40 Swedish crowns, which is roughly three British pounds or four American dollars in today's money. This was, of course, before Facebook, Twitter, and other popular social media sites existed. 
but the rumor that a big party for young people was taking place in the city quickly spread throughout the majority of youngsters in Gothenburg. Before receiving the keys to the premises, the person who was responsible for renting the function hall was given a guided tour of the room by the owner. The function hall itself was a relatively small rectangular room with a few extra smaller rooms and a decent sized dance floor. The hall could be entered or exited at two different points. The front door at one end of the room and the fire exit on the other side next to the dance floor and the stage where the DJ set up his equipment. The doors were 90 centimeters wide and they led to two different staircases and down to a culvert system. There was plenty of windows lined along the walls, but as the room was previously a factory, the windows were positioned at a high level, roughly 2.2 meters up from the floor level. A maximum of 150 people was permitted at the one time, due to fire safety regulations. They wanted to make more room for dancing inside the hall, so they ask if they can move some tables and chairs. The renter agrees to this and shows them where to store the furniture. In the staircase, just outside the fire exit, and this is exactly what they do. On the evening of the party, masses of teenagers queue up in anticipation outside the front doors of the Macedonian Association Club. The majority of the youngsters are under 18 years old, and for many, this is the first party they have attended without their parents. Their first club experience, so to speak. As this is a private party, the organizers decide to hire a doorman to be on the safe side and to make sure that there is no unwanted trouble on the night. Directly behind the front door, a table was set up where one person was sat collecting the entrance fee of 40 crowns from everyone attending the party. This table, however, was blocking almost half of the staircase, making it a very narrow, tight squeeze for anyone walking by. It soon becomes clear that there are far more than the permitted number of 150 people inside the premises. It's actually closer to 400. And more and more people are queuing outside, hoping to get in. The party is now in full swing and it seems like everyone is having a good time. 
two girls are sitting on the side of the dance floor, close to the fire exit. Suddenly, they think that they can smell smoke. They look around, but can't see anything. But the smell doesn't go away. If anything, it gets stronger. They tell the DJ, and he decides to investigate. He can't see any flames, and because they have been using smoke machines on the dance floor, he suspects that it might be this that the girls are smelling. A few minutes pass, and one of the girls approaches the DJ again, saying that he really needs to have another look around, because they can smell smoke. Smoke that you would associate with a fire. The DJ takes a closer look by touching the handlebar to the fire exit. It's glowing hot and he burns himself when he touches it. He jumps back in both shock and pain, which leads to the fire doors opening. And just like that, the terrifying thick black smoke bellows into the room. The DJ stops the music and says over the microphone that there's a fire and everyone must calmly move towards the exit. People don't know what to think. Some even think that he is joking. They can't see any flames or smell any smoke, so they start to joke around a bit, as all teenagers do. But some people do listen to him and believe that there might be a smaller fire and a lamp or something of that nature, so they slowly start to make their way out. At that moment, disaster strikes. The fire in the staircase had been burning for a long time and was blisteringly hot. So hot, in fact, that the massive iron staircase railings had been weighed down by the heat, almost melting. When the emergency exit door is opened, oxygen brings new life to the flames, and a massive ball of fire comes shooting out into the function room. Sheer panic breaks out. Everyone starts to run towards the only remaining exit, which is the entrance door. But since no one on the outside realizes what is going on inside the function hall, there are still people entering the same door that hundreds of people are now desperately trying to get out of. Sadly, there is only one result. The entrance gets plugged shut with human bodies. A second disaster strikes. A fire gas explosion occurs. A fire gas explosion can happen if the fire gases from a ventilation-controlled fire, reach another area and mix with the air 
creating a flammable mixture of gas. If this mixture ignites, the pressure of the explosion can be incredibly heavy and extremely dangerous. Black smoke fills the room and all the lights go out. The youngsters are frantically trying to get out of the function hall at the same time as the smoke is making it almost impossible to both see or breathe. In the panic, people are starting to push their way forward, making other people lose their balance and fall, unable to get back up in the chaos surrounding them. A common human reaction that we have seen so often over the years, particularly in football stadiums or concert crushes. The sheer panic brings out that human desire for survival. Witnesses would later speak of the screams they heard. Young people calling out for help and for their mothers to come and save them. Those same witnesses also said that they will never forget those desperate screams for help as long as they live. Some of the youngsters who realized that they weren't going to make it out through the front door squeezed themselves into a small room that was used as a cloakroom and closed the door. They picked up their mobile phones and called the fire brigade and waited. The time was now 11.42 p.m. All of a sudden, the door opens and more people try to get into the cloakroom, but some pass out due to the smoke and block the door from being shut, leading to the thick, black, suffocating smoke filling the room. Initially, there is a bit of a misunderstanding as to where the fire is located, so the firemen have to drive around for a bit before they eventually find the exact location. But when they get there, they are met by a horrible sight. Some of the boys and girls that were trapped inside had somehow managed to climb up the 2.2 meters to the windows through the black poisonous smoke and jump out. But the drop to the ground outside is about five meters directly onto the asphalt. So many are seriously injured by the fall. The firemen can see that there are people trapped inside, but when they get to the entrance door, they are met by a large number of people that have been trying to run out of the narrow door at the same time, resulting in the plugging of the entry, completely blocking the firemen from getting into the premises. The firemen begin to pull people out, untying the human knot, 
they scream to other survivors in the staircase to help and carry as many people as possible outside and then come back and help with the remaining youngsters. Their focus was not to put the fire out, but to try and pull out as many people they possibly could. And once inside, they quickly scanned their premises, looking for anybody that seemed to be alive. They find many youngsters who are still alive, who had been trampled and buried under dead bodies. They had miraculously survived due to the air at the bottom of the floor not being as toxic as the air at a higher level. When the firemen opened the door to the small cloakroom, they find 26 people inside. They were piled up and just looked like they were sleeping. But they had all been suffocated by the heavy smoke. In many of the youngsters' pockets, mobile phones were ringing and ringing and ringing. Worried parents, family and friends desperately trying to get a hold of them. Thanks to sheer bravery, some of the youngsters were able to help the firemen carry out the bodies of people who had passed out, in turn saving many more lives. They laid them down on the parking lot outside the hall, where everybody who was able to helped in any way that they could. At about half past twelve, the parking lot was filled with injured and dead people. Fifty firemen, forty ambulance staff, two medical teams and forty-two police officers were on the scene, as well as worried parents and friends who had rushed to the function hall on hearing the terrible news. The scene was understandably chaotic. There had never been a disaster of this proportion before, and the emergency response teams were not able to cope with the vast numbers of injured youngsters. They had to prioritize, and this led to heated arguments between the shocked and panic-stricken survivors who wanted immediate help for their friends and loved ones. The police tried their best to make bystanders and the non-injured step back and make some room for the ambulance staff to do their job. All the injured and family members were sent to the same hospital, Salgrenska, the largest in the city. The ambulances were going back and forward between the hospital and the scene of the disaster, basically working on the principle of load and go. 
buses were called in for the mildly injured youngsters who didn't require immediate care. The family members who couldn't find their loved ones among the injured at Salgrenska were shown to a room where the police had gathered personal belongings of the deceased youngsters and organized them into trays. The room contained 63 trays, meaning that 63 people had lost their lives in the fire. The youngest being only 12 years old and the oldest 20. If any personal items were identified, the next of kin was taken through to the morgue, accompanied by a psychology team. In total, 63 people died and 213 people suffered various injuries. Gothenburg was in shock. Rumors had already started to spread that this was no accident and everyone wanted to know who was behind it. Wild speculation flourished throughout the city. One of the rumors was that the attack was racially motivated and that neo-Nazis were behind it. Someone put up posters all over the city saying 60 immigrant youths have died. Now 60 Swedes will die. Police immediately began their investigation and questioned 1,000 350 people to try and find anyone that may have been involved in deliberately starting the fire. At the end of the investigation, their findings will cover almost 3,000 pages. But a year later, they were still not any closer to solving the case. So the Swedish government decided to issue an award of 3 million crowns, which is around 249,000 British pounds or 343,000 US dollars for anyone who could provide information that will lead to an arrest. Meanwhile, the organizers of the party were accused of causing the death of the youngsters and causing serious bodily harm since they had disregarded the fire safety regulations of the maximum 150 people limit and also for the blocking of the fire exit with tables and chairs. But the prosecutor decided to drop these charges 
because the Swedish government's reward had worked. Potential suspects had been identified. A lucky escape for the organizers. Soon after the award of 3 million Swedish crowns was announced, a key witness had come forward saying someone had confessed to him what had happened in lead up to the fire. During the evening of the 29th of October, a group of friends, Shoresh, Hussein and Muhammad, were standing outside the entrance to the function hall. They didn't want to pay the 40 crowns entry fee and they demanded to be let in for free. But the doorman had his instructions from the organizers and said that no one gets in for free. Everybody has to pay, no exceptions. This pisses the three friends off, and they started to argue with the doorman, but he wouldn't budge, turning the three friends away. According to witnesses, Shoresh then said, I will fuck this party up, before leaving. Still angry, they convince one of their other friends, Maysam, to sneak down to the underground tunnel via the fire exit inside the hall and open the back door for them. Once inside the culvert, they decide that they will start a fire, saying that if they can't party, then no one else should be able to either. They place pieces of paper under the chairs and tables that are stacked outside the fire exit, then light them. According to their statement, the plan was to set off the fire alarm so that the fire brigade would force everyone to vacate the premises, putting a stop to the party. After starting the fire, they all leave without informing anyone about what they had done. The trial started on the 3rd of May of the year 2000. Three specially built rooms are set up in the Congress Center to make room for everyone involved. One of the halls are made for members of the court, the suspects, and their defenders, interpreters, and a few journalists. In the other two halls, the proceedings in the court are shown on large screens. These two large halls have room for 580 family and friends of the deceased and 100 journalists. The trial is also simultaneously 
interpreted into 13 different languages. All of the accused, except for Maysam, had been convicted for previous crimes, such as theft, robbery, assault, and attempted manslaughter. It was described that Shoresh, Hussein, and Muhammad were all good friends who used to hang with each other. But Maysam, who was the youngest of them, 17 at the time of the fire, wasn't really part of their group. He didn't really fit in with the rest of them, and his defense attorney would argue that he didn't realize that they were planning to start a fire in the staircase when he let them into the building. During the trial, Shoresh admits setting the paper on fire, but pleads not guilty to criminal intent. The other three plead not guilty. One of the defendants explains that he never thought the fire could spread like that. He only briefly thought about the possible scenario on his way home, but decided not to turn back or warn anyone. They are all convicted of arson, and Shoresh, who admitted lighting the fire, is sentenced to eight years in prison. Hussein and Muhammad both received six years in prison. And Maysan, who was under 18 at the time of the offense, is sentenced to three years in juvenile detention. They all appeal. Hussein's and Mohammed's sentences are extended to seven years, whilst Shoresh and Maysam's remain the same. Their sentences were confirmed on the 12th of October 2000, when the Supreme Court denied yet another appeal. After serving their time, they all received protected identities. Ten years after the fire, all of them, apart from Maysam, had continued with their criminal activities, involving both drugs and assault. Today, the function hall where the fire took place, has been restored and now serves as a memorial building in honor of the youngsters who lost their lives that evening. Inside, there are personal belongings on display and pictures of what the premises looked like after the fire. The Gothenburg Fire Brigade and relatives of the victims today host information meetings about fire safety, showing how dangerous and how quickly the flames can spread out of control and what devastating consequences this could have. In October of this year, 
It will be 20 years since that evening when the city of Gothenburg lost 63 of its children. <laughs>